0: I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson.
1: So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. its 19.99. so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today.
2: Thank you for your interest
0: and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive.
3: Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host Ben Durant and beside me is Brian Kazaska. Hi Brian. Hey Ben. We are doing the last feature film of David no. Lynch's. Ah, it's come and to an end. It, this
1: film is amazingly good amazingly good surprisingly good i i didn't know what to expect for a g-rated disney film disney paid for it i don't think kids would like it i think it'd be boring to children true
3: it's a mature theme there's no animation in this there's no animation or singing, <laughs> or singing.
1: there's nobody saying let it go or let it go
3: i mean that'd be kind of funny
1: at the yeah. end of the movie that way oh yeah mr straight shows up and he's just like well let it go let it go and yeah. that was i mean the they end. could do like wish upon a star Yeah, yeah. well they do stare at the sky a lot They do But we're doing the straight story And we're not doing it by ourselves Oh, no, we cannot do it by ourselves
3: We have two great people on the show We've got the godfather of Twin Peaks John John Thorne Thorne.
1: We have the man, the myth, the legend, the only Joel Joel Bacco
3: He does the the Journey Through Twin Peaks video essays He's got these great uh, blogs that he's been doing his character studies on yes Loving it. Hi guys. Hey. So today we are going to focus on The Straight Story by David Lynch or directed by David Lynch. Uh, it was released on October 15th, 1999 and the film was co-written, co-produced and edited by Mary Sweeney, uh, Lynch's longtime partner and co-worker. And uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, this and this is pretty different. This is this is Walt Disney G-rated. And this is something, I mean, Lynch did not write this, but he, like, I think, I feel like we think his connection with Mary made him want to be involved with this project. Well,
0: I, we interviewed Mary Sweeney for Rats in Plastic and talked to her about straight story and about, you know, the editing work she had done with Lynch. And as I recall, she she had written the script and given it to him to look at, and it, it, it just seemed something that he was interested potentially in, in doing, and so I think it just sort of naturally fell into place. Uh, even though perhaps the subject matter... It didn't seem like it would be the typical Lynch topic. I think it became once he got involved a very Lynch film. Mm. So I think
3: that's what happened. Yeah, and it's interesting. This is based on a true story by um, of Alvin Street, 1994 journey across Iowa and Wisconsin uh, on a lawnmower. And <laughs> his his lawnmower to this day
1: is in the museum, their local museum. Um, amongst all this old stuff, there's a John Deere. 66 lawnmower. That's funny. They, They have it preserved, which is really cool. It's an amazing story.
3: So let's start with Brian. What did you think of this film?
1: I watched it for the first time yesterday. I thought it was beautiful. I think it's one of Lynch's most beautiful shot movies. I think you could take every scene, freeze it, just amazing to look at. Hmm. Never bored. I was never bored. Very emotional, but I really liked it. It shows what a genius he is.
0: Thinking about how expressive it is of, like, David Lynch's personal ethos. Like, I just feel like this character almost could be him in a way. I mean, they're very different, obviously, Hmm. but he creates this sort of homemade craft, very stubborn, kinda of does it his own way and then he goes off in the slowest manner possible <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, to, to see his brother and friendly but reserved, doesn't, you know, uh, let other people sort of tell him how to how to do what he's doing. I mean it really the whole thing, I mean, even though it's a true story and he didn't write, you know, a look of it, it almost could be like a metaphor for his filmmaking. Mm. You know, it's just kind of amazing. Yeah. Even though the film itself doesn't Really conform to this, the, you know, what somebody might think of as a stereotypical Lynch style. But it really feels very Lynch to me. There's so many of his motifs scattered throughout it. His sensibility is there. Sort of, even certain shots, I, I think, you know, if I tuned in halfway through on TV and I'd never heard of the film, I might not know it was David Lynch, but I feel like if I watched that first shot where <laughs> the camera's craning down onto the lawn and the woman goes and she's leaves and you hear a thud the camera moves into the building and then she comes back out and she just puts the reflector on her chest and kind of puts her blindfold Mm -hmm. on like like if i just saw that sequence i think i would go this this might be a David Lynch movie. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. He'll carry blue Velvet. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yeah, it reminded yeah. me of Blue Velvet. The opening, like, we well, actually starts off on the street and you see a dog walking down the street. Yeah. And then you go to the lawn yeah. and there's just a woman because hanging out there. But it kind of it does. And then and then like in in Blue Velvet, the father I think has a heart attack and he falls over. And in this one, exactly. we have Alvin Strait you, you just hear the sound of him falling over. But it's still kind of similar to Blue uh-huh. Velvet starting off. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> funny because the film I think it connects
0: with his later work and his early work in interesting ways. I think a lot of times people have sort of seen it as sort of out of step with his later films
2: mm-hmm. because,
0: you know, it's it's a much more straightforward subject. There's no doubling <laughs> other than the Prince Others, I mm-hmm. guess. It certainly seems radically different from Lost Highway and Mullen Drive and if you're gonna compare it to anything, you'd probably think, Oh maybe the elephant man kind of an interesting fusion in a way. Um, on the one hand there are a lot of things that connect to the earlier films, for one thing, all of his early works are these iconic shots of of Starfields. Dune has it, Elephant Man has it, and Eraserhead has it, and and then it kind of goes away. You don't see those shots again in his later works. But Straight Story has it, at least I counted four times, where they just pan up to the stars and kind of see the stars coming in. It's also shot by... A Freddie Fisher, cinematographer of the Elephant Man. Who oh, okay. at that time was about eighty he was an old British uh, photographed a lot of horror films. So he came on yet. Lynch hadn't worked with him since Elephant Man and also Jack Fisk, who was an old Lynch friend and Sophie Spacek, who's Jack Fisk's wife and helps fund uh, Eraserhead the first time they act, but she goes Mm. way back with him. There is something that's a little reminiscent of of the work up to and including Blue Velvet. Certainly the editing is not quite as uh, frenetic, say like Wild at Heart or Inland Empire or something. Now, on the other hand, uh, to me it really does fit in with his later work. And one of the reasons is you might not have frenetic editing but you do have a lot of sort of cross dissolve and the camera moves a lot too that's another thing i don't think of them as really being particularly characterized by a lot of moving camera there are those shots mm. like in elephant man when you go into the eye of the mask but i think of him more as composing sort of within the frame uh, all the way up through pretty much every episode he did of twin peaks although you start to see a little bit of steady cam in um, season two. And, and Wild at Heart, it has a very mobile camera, as I recall. Mm. Um, and Straight Story does, too. There's a lot of movement. I mean, you're on a, a moving vehicle, so it kind of makes sense, even though it moves very slowly. But there's a sort of impressionistic feel to it that connects to me with his most wild at Heart films. And I also think with Elephant Man, it's a great movie in many ways, but you can see Lynch in it, but there's also parts of it that are sort of like Lynch sort of trying to do something different than what he does. Mm. I don't really get that sense of straight story. It really feels totally... Even though, he again, he didn't write the script, and it's the only film he ever made, I believe, where he did not at least get co-writing credit.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but something about it just feels, start to finish, like lynch is doing it exactly as he would do it and thinks it should be done sort of like alvin straight himself obviously the title of straight story is a play on words or it has mm-hmm. double meaning because it's the story of alvin straight but it's also lynch is kind of telling you i'm going to tell you a story that goes straight along with sort of a normal beginning middle and end you can follow it maybe a little more easily than some of my other works but um even though that's the case, I think the whole you know world of Lynch is surrounding this story. You know, if you're on the road with Alvin Straight, uh, and I do think he's a Lynchian character mm-hmm. to, to some extent, Lynch put some of his characteristics that he likes from other characters in, into that. But that world of Lynch is sort of right off the road. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, sort of just it's there. He's traveling through it, and it's there, and it's not necessarily overt and it doesn't hit you over the head, but there are a lot of subtle things that that go on and there's even an effort, we can get into it later, I think on Lynch's part to get a little abstract at a certain point and to imply perhaps what you're seeing is not necessarily what is happening. Hmm. Uh, It's subtle It's subtle, and it's nowhere near like he does in things like Holland Drive and Lost Highway but it's there and it's always always struck me as I've watched it, I've seen it many Time. There are sequences where I I think, well, that was deliberate, very deliberate. What was he trying to do? There are a number of things that go on, and there's, there's a lot of small things that happen throughout his journey that are curious. But without getting into all those little ones, I'll go to the big one. And the big one is when Alvin is nearing the end of his journey, he is crossing the Mississippi River. He's on the bridge. Hmm. I've watched this sequence many, many times. The music is somewhat uplifting. He seems to have been really kind of achieving his goal. A group of kids or you know, teenagers drive by and they all wave to him, and he's kind of got a happy face because he's, he's crossing the Mississippi. And then the music changes, and it changes dramatically. It becomes very dark. It also becomes foreboding, and the camera... Dissolves to this huge and overhead shot of the bridge and it becomes dark and then it almost immediately the next shot is in a graveyard
4: mm. at night.
0: We don't see Alvin complete the journey across the bridge. We don't see him get to the other side on the tractor and you know, sort of complete that accomplishment. We get this overhead shot, we get this darker music, and then we're in a graveyard at night. And I don't know what that means, but I do believe that Lynch was very deliberate.
2: Wow. He
0: didn't just accidentally edit it the wrong way or yeah. put that music in or dissolve that way. So what does it mean? Thought about it. You could take it, you can know, you could start overanalyzing, and I can do that very easily. Does it mean that Alvin is dead, or he's Mm. dying, or this is... He didn't make it. He didn't make it. Does it mean, I like to to think, because of the way the rest of the film plays out, that maybe it means Alvin knows there's no going back, that there's no way he's Mm. going to return, Mm. that this is a one-way journey, Mm -hmm. just like life and and death. You end in death, and you can't come back after that. So I don't know. That may be be too much, but, but clearly Lynch is doing something there. Then shortly after that, you get Alvin walking into the bar and having a beer, where he's very deliberate earlier on saying, I don't drink anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to think it was because uh, Alvin was an unreliable narrator that he was Mm -hmm. not really telling you the story. I don't necessarily believe that anymore. I think it fits in with that previous theory, which is, I'm not going back. This Mm -hmm. is it. Um, I can drink this beer now because I don't have any more responsibility. I'm going to drink this beer and I'm finishing my journey. So, there's that. I think that's a really, really big thing.
4: We'd bunk down when the sun went down and we'd talk to each other until we went to sleep. We'd talk about the stars and whether there might be somebody else like us out in space, places we wanted to go, and it made our trials seem smaller.
1: Crashing into the house that's on fire. Well, he goes by it. Uh, yeah, and he's going down the hill. I almost thought he was deliberately right. trying to kill himself.
3: You know what that fire made me think of there's a story his daughter had yeah. children and and she wasn't even responsible. She was away and somebody else was taking care of it and yeah, got yeah. burnt. Because you got that story prior to
1: that scene. Right. And I'm like, Oh, are they get are they gonna give us a flashback? Like, all I see is firemen in a house on fire, and I'm like no, they're not going to show us what happened and then you see some people watching. I'm like that's sadistic and then you realize it's just some old house on fire and these people are laughing and because it's an eyesore. But when he was going down that hill, you know, he saw that and maybe that triggered those feelings that um because he seemed to be in a trance. And I almost part of me was just like if he were to just fly into that and died, would he have been fine with it? And it kind of goes back to what you're saying, John, like him being in the graveyard. And him just kind of being like, this is it. If Maybe if I were to die in this journey, I would be fine with that because at least I'm doing what I want to do. So I kind of got the same impression, too, with the whole beer thing, that this was
3: it. Yeah. And it's funny, my interpretation of the beer thing was just kind of like, I haven't talked to my brother in years, and this is going to be really hard, mm. and I have to, like, I almost have to, I don't know if it's big, but I have to kind of, I have to find a way to muster up the energy to actually face yeah, him, Yeah, yeah. And, like, some people think alcohol gives you courage. I yeah, guess. You know, liquid that you courage. Give, yeah, liquid courage. Liquid courage. So for me, it was just kind of like I need enough courage. I need to stop. I need to stop my journey. Have a beer, and try to get enough courage to actually make that last step to my that, brothers. That's, yeah, I thought that as well.
0: Well, the fire thing is really interesting. I mean, that's obviously a really Lynchian trademark, and it's all over this film. You know, I mean, you have know, the campfires, you have fire that I guess his grandson was burned in, and then mm-hmm. you have that fire in the house. And I think what Brian said about being a trigger is that's the perfect way to put it And because there's always these objects in Lynch films which are triggers like that. You have the fan in Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me. You have fire also in Wild at Heart. And you have um, the, the key in Mallard Drive. There's always these objects which have this sort of emotional resonance. And even though he loves abstraction, For some reason, they do always seem to have a kind of a narrative root, you know, Mm. with something happening traumatic to the character. But they don't function in, like, a really obvious way. So it's like there's no literal connection between the burning house and his, his, I always call it a tractor, but I guess it's a lawnmower, his, you know, vehicle speeding down the hill. They're not related, like, causally, but somehow, as always in a a lynch film, they're, like, associated. In a way, I think for Lynch, fire is uh, a symbol of uh, things out of control. Uh, You know, you see it over and over again, and certainly see it in um, in Fire Walk with Me and the log lady saying when this kind of fire starts to burn. Fire for Lynch is chaotic. It's the scene in Dune, in fact, when uh, Paul approaches the front end, and there's suddenly there's some violence, and Lynch has flames in the background. There's no reason for them to be there. There's no reason why these flames would suddenly burst Mm -hmm. in the background of the scene other than to add to this feeling of chaos and violence and danger. And I think for Lynch when he had this scene of Alvin getting out of the the tractor it literally is going to be out of control. It Mm -hmm. is. Alvin cannot control it. And so for Lynch a way of really sort of underscoring the idea of lack of control is fire. Mm-hmm. And so there's a fire burning, and he can cut to it, and yeah. he does. He cuts to it over and over again. these these think that was way, one way Rich wanted to convey the idea of this sort of chaotic moment. And for, for Lynch, own fire. And, I, you know, he probably was thinking, what, what way can I incorporate fire into this? I You know, what way would, would work? And he comes up with the best thing he could, which is, There's a controlled burn, which is is ironic, that the firemen are, are, you know, practicing on. But it is there so that it it helps that scene achieve that kind of uh, danger and chaos. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One other thing about fire, back when we were doing the magazine, we interviewed a, a film critic named Tim Kreider, who was a really, really good critic and really did some deep analysis of Lynch work. And he proposed the idea, I'll just throw it out there, that Alvin was the person who had been watching the kids when Rose, his daughter, when the fire started. If you watch the scene where he says, he said someone else was watching them. Mm. Of course, it's happening at the campfire while he's discussing it. He's always lighting up a cigarette. He's always yeah. lighting. He's got him right there in his yeah, pocket. Yeah. And so he thought that, that he was carrying that burden with him—that he had been the one who had done it. By that there's some evidence in the film but uh, later on there's another burden we find out that Alvin's been carrying from his time in the war mm. and so I'm not sure I can buy both of them because one of them is, I obviously states it you know I killed someone right. by accident
3: I've been carrying that with me then I kind of like that idea and I like that idea because also there's a point where there's a girl who's she's hitchhiking and she's running away from her family and she's hanging out at the campfire and he talks about like oh family's really important y- you really should be there for your family, and you got to mm-hmm. know that. And yet, he's had this long yeah. time apart yeah. from his brother. So it's almost like he—it's just funny that like he—he he can't tell the girl like I've had my own family problems. Yeah. He's yeah. but so I can—I kind of feel like he holds his cards pretty close. He actually did kill one of his own people. I—I kind of can buy that right. it's possible that he actually accidentally burned his grandson. I think that there's some there's, there's enough in the film to support that he's carrying that guilt. We don't know why the brothers had a fight or why they... They just haven't talked in 10
1: years, they said. Yeah. Really.
3: I mean, that's why... Yeah, they discussion. kind of leave it to your imagination. Also,
1: going back to what uh, Joel said before, how, like, if you were to turn this on and it was on TV and it, it would speak to you in a way that you couldn't know it's David Lynch, I would say, for me, not the dialogue, but just the faces. This I think this movie speaks volumes, even if there was barely any dialogue. Richard uh, Farnsworth who plays Alvin, he, he does an amazing job. His, yeah. his face, his face shows mm-hmm. this weathered old man, but it just, you just look at it, your imagination can go wild about what this man has been through. His face right. just says it all. I think that's why you, you feel like it's a Lynch film, just because of the expression. And some of the scenes, I'm like, wow, they stayed in his face the entire time his daughter was talking, yeah. just to give you what he was feeling. And I think that says volumes. Really? Like, you're just like, wow. Yeah. That's Lynch right there. To stay on somebody for way longer than you should be and for a purpose?
0: He does the opposite thing sometimes where it's like a really long shot held for a long time. Yeah. And you almost can't hear what they're saying. You just hear the noise of the trees. And yeah. Wind uh-huh. and the insects and stuff, and it just creates this ambiance.
1: Yeah, you know, we're going kind of near, near the end. He breaks down. Right, his trailer breaks down and perfect. he sits I there and he sits. Yeah, he sits there and he sits there and he sits yeah. there. Mm. And this trailer comes up and it's a, it's like you're saying, Joel. It's a far away shot. You can barely understand what he's saying because the the motor is so loud. And then he is able to start his engine again. It was weird. I was like, what happened there? <laughs> like, it's, is he going to help him? Yeah. And I didn't get it.
0: That is the scene I was referring to earlier, and that to me is. That that was a Lynch addition to this film, Mm. and it ties in with some of the other things we've seen in in other Lynch films, particularly, I would say, Fire Walk With Me with the angels appearing. Mm. Uh, That guy on the large tractor... It seems to me very much like divine intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alvin has almost made it. He's almost there, but he's not quite. And it, it's a very interesting scene to watch how it's filmed, how it's edited. Alvin breaks down, and then there's a lot of dissolves to imply that he's been sitting there for mm-hmm. some time. Now, part of it could be his own reluctance to move forward because this mm-hmm. is a stressful situation to come to his brother again. But the tractor comes in, and you cannot see the farmer on the tractor. You can't. Okay. You never see his face. And the farmer on the tractor. If you can hear. Barely hear him. He says. Well, give it another shot, and as soon as he does, the tractor starts right up. Alvin's broken-down tractor, mm-hmm. immediately starts back up. Big tractor with the farmer on it moves forward, and there's some very interesting shots of the close-ups of the, the, the wheels turning from mm-hmm. behind. And this big tractor guides him, and the, and the guy on the tractor actually lifts his arm and points in a direction, almost as if he's ushering, Alvin to his destination, and mm. you see the tractor, the big tractor, they kind of swing off a curb and, and into the woods as if it's just disappearing. Mm. And it, it's a very strange, strange sequence. You wonder, why is it there? Why did Lynch put that there? It doesn't have any meaning, necessarily. It seems random, uh, and yet I asked Mary Sweet about that scene, and she said I refuse to comment on that. I will not comment on that scene. So, clearly, they knew that there was something to it, and they didn't Want to define it for us? They wanted to leave it mysterious. It and I mysterious. very much yeah. believe that was a it was a sequence that you see in other Lynch films, where there's all and you see at the end of *Wild at Heart*, you know, where the you know the sort of comes down out of the sky. You, you mm-hmm. see these the interventions from divine or otherworldly beings come into the story. And Lynch did it very subtly, but I very much believe that that was his way of saying there are forces beyond you that can come in Hmm. and assist you. I think that's a good way of putting it. And it sort of ties in, too, with this idea of not divine, but sort of human, I don't know if you'd call it intervention or whatever. But uh, for the first part of the movie, Alvin's kind of able to sort of, just maintain this independent, sort of go-it-alone persona, and he, he offers some advice to other people and interacts with them, but he's looking out for himself, and then, of course, his lawnmower breaks down, and he has to get help from that family, but he still won't go into their house, you know, he takes the telephone outside. And I think the movie starts to pivot, he becomes a little more open when he goes out for a beer with the other veteran, and he mm. tells his war story. And from that point on, it seems like he's a little more open to other people, he's a little more willing, you know, and then you see that guy helping him out, whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, as to who he is. And I like I almost see it as like the tractor's big brother. It's another green John Deere tractor, but it's like four times the size. Yes. Yeah, it's very refreshing. Tractor called its big brother to come and give him a, a, a
3: boost. Yeah. <laughs> so the family that he stays with when his lawnmower breaks down, the guy worked for John Deere. Do you remember that? Like, he said that he was, a, he used to be an employee. So yeah, that's an interesting coincidence. Isn't yes, it? It's yes, like yes. You have these Movies like, like a commercial for John Deere, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I have to mention uh, Everett McGill. Yes, it was so good to see him. Yeah, he played Tom, and oh, like
4: yeah. he he was the one that sold him the lawnmower. One more thing. Sometime you can find out a little about these 30-year-old machines if you know who run them. Do you know who owned it?
3: You better do. Me.
4: All right.
3: <laughs> Big Ed.
0: Big Ed. It's like, it's obviously the same almost type of character, but sort of in a different register, you know? Mm. Um, I think there's a few pieces of acting in the film that are a little broader, almost more like kind of twin peaks and goofier moments. I think one is the deer lady. Ah. Uh. Uh, Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Take some getting used to. She's I mean, like almost in from a different film. You yes, know? It's it like felt like a Lynch, witch- a yeah. cartoonish kind of over the top iteration that obviously Lynch wanted and went for, and you know relished sort of a Super Nadine or something. You know, she's just her whole delivery and her face and everything. Can I help you, lady?
4: No, you can't help me. No one can help me. I've tried driving with my lights on. I've tried sounding my horn. I scream out the window. I, I roll the window down
1: and bang on the side of the door and play public enemy real loud.
4: I have prayed to St. Francis of Assisi, St. Christopher, too. What the heck? I've tried everything a person could do, and still, every week, I plow into at least one
0: deer. I have hit. Thirteen deer in seven weeks driving down this road, Mister. And I have to drive down this road every day, forty miles back and forth to work. I have to drive to work and I have to drive home. (sighs) Almost seems somewhat out of place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I, until last time, I last night I finished watching it. I never really could make any sense of it, uh, other than uh, Lynch having fun. <laughs> yeah. but I think I actually have an interpretation of why it's there. I don't think Lynch does, you know, just puts random stuff in and I'm trying to figure out what, what's going on. Well, she speeds by Alvin fast and hits mm. the deer, and then she has her spiel about how I always hit mm. a deer. I try everything to stop hitting a deer and nothing works. I can't help it. No matter what I do... I always hit a deer. And then she gets in her car, and she carries out of there yeah. as fast as she can. <laughs> and I thought, well, the answer to the question is, you're going too fast. You've got to slow down. Of course, this movie, you know, it's slow. It's like, you he, know, on a lawnmower.
1: She didn't read yeah. <laughs> and, her manual. so,
0: <laughs> I love it. And so I wondered if that was supposed to be, you know, she can't see the obvious, which mm. is, You can beep your horn and you can, you know, open your window and play the music really loud. But if you're going 90 miles an hour down the road, there's no time for the deer to get out of the way. (laughs) To me, anyway, that was what I took away from it this time, was that she was missing the obvious, which was, there's a solution, and the solution is to stop driving so fast.
1: The whole movie's about a journey. She's passing by the journey. She wants to get to a destination. That's all she cares about. She's like, I drive 40 minutes back and forth. I have to go home. I have to go to work. But she's on this beautiful road. It's true. And she's not paying attention to the journey. Like you're saying, John, I think it really comes down to, in life, if you don't pay attention and slow down sometimes, you're missing out what's important. And that's always the journey. Because this movie ends. The journey's over. I mean, there is no real solidified conversation that happens it's just this movie is just a journey it's just a journey and this woman if she if
3: this movie was based off her life it would have been two (laughs) seconds (laughs) it would have been I hit a deer movie over right right. yeah I do think it's great Lynch kind of comedy like so she she takes off and for Alvin it's odd I got dinner now (laughs) and he's surrounded by fake deer yeah I got dinner now yeah Uh, exactly yeah Uh, and then Antlers trailer yeah Yeah. yeah or part of his journey that, you know, he keeps collecting things on his way. And there. then also the brothers, the twin brothers who fix
0: his uh, his machine. There's an interesting, well, a couple interesting things. Well, one of them are called the Olsen twins. Yeah, the Olsen which twins. Which is kind of <laughs> funny from a 90s <laughs> perspective. The other thing
3: is, do you know the actors who played them? They're real, brother, the real, they real brother. brothers. They are real brothers. Yes. Ke- yeah. Kevin and John Farley. They're Chris Farley's brothers, yep. Oh! Which actually kind of adds another... Another level of, of sort
0: of poignance to it because he had just died uh, two or three years earlier, wow. and they're talking about you know reconciling mm. with your brother and sort of making sure that you know you see them and what the value of brothers are and everything wow. like that. So I mean, it's already kind of cute because they're actually brothers, but then even beyond that, there's sort of an element of tragedy beneath it if you if you know the backstory, you know. Wow. And I mean, I don't know that they didn't get along with him or anything i would assume they did but just in terms of that you know their brother had just died in sort of tragic circumstances two or three years earlier
3: kind of cool that he's on this road and he and people just bike uh, people on bikes pass him by and he meets a girl trying to run away and and it's an interesting story. Just and to... he's giving
1: life lessons to these people because he's lived it. And he's learning as he goes yeah. as well. He's
3: learning from others. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
3: One of my favorite lines in the film is
0: when the bicyclist says, you know, it's sort of this young, cocky bicyclist, and he says, What are you, what's the worst part of being old? And he says, uh, remembering when you were young. Hmm. And you can kind of take it as like, oh, he's an old man, and, you know, he, he misses being young, and it's... But the way he says it and the way he looks makes it sound more like I remember when I was a young asshole like you. Nah. Nah. And that's the worst part of being old. But I have, to, I have to remember being like a callous youth. So I, I really love that delivery, like the way he says it. Uh, Joel, what did you think about The Runaway Girl? And did you see any Laura Palmer there? Yeah, I was thinking about especially this time, watching it. Because it was, what, probably seven, seven years after he made that and you kind of have this girl who, you know, probably not that loving of a woman. I mean, she said they hate me. She's also a teenager, so she might just be over-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. But it does it does seem solid trouble. There's a number of ways you can interpret it. There's maybe an implication that she goes back to her family. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so maybe yeah. they're not that bad. But but it's almost sort of like a more, I don't want to say realistic, because I think Laura Palmer is very realistic in her own way, but it's, that's a very heightened portrait of sort of a troubled teenager, yeah. and this is sort of a very ordinary type of thing that just happens every day all the time. But it's still kind of momentous in its, in its way for the people to deal with it. You know, this this young girl pregnant feels like she has no support, running away from home. Mm. Um, and, and I think the film actually does that with a lot of different sort of Lynch Let's see if it sort of presents it. You know, that's what I was saying with Everett McGill. It kind of presents it in a more Low key a naturalistic register. Yeah. It's not quite as heightened. But as far as she goes, actually, when I was saying that to you, another thought occurred to me, which is when she ties the bundle of sticks in the end, maybe that's just a sign of that she appreciated his company. Hmm. You know? That's sort of not a saying, I'm going back to my family, but thank you for, you know, feeding me and, and putting me up and, and talking with me, and almost like a, a gesture of family to him, you know? Hmm. Kind of interesting. I've never thought of that before. Uh, I've always thought there was a little bit an element of the, the Laura Palmer storyline there, uh, and I agree with you. Everything in this film is much more grounded and less heightened than what you would see in other Lynch films. Um, and I, I saw this as very grounded. Uh, uh, you know, uh, less heightened version of Laura's Laura Palmer she's obviously gotten into some trouble, and it's almost like she, you know, she gets this advice from an elder. Uh, and if, if Laura had listened to, to the log lady, or if Laura had listened to, you know, someone who had this wisdom, maybe she wouldn't have. You know, gone the way she did. Uh, and I I thought, uh, and I, I thought the way that her hair was styled, too, reminded me of the way he'd he done, you know, Laura's look. And so it's it just interesting. I, I don't think there's any major, you know, you're supposed to make any major connection there. I just think he was revisiting. Yeah, some of that character and storyline. And I will say, I noticed for the first time—I've never noticed this before—that while Alvin is sitting there talking to her, an owl hoots in the tree. <laughs> <And he> tired, <laughs> I noticed that it was too. Yeah, and I never great. noticed it before. And obviously, the owl sound was put in post-production. It wasn't like it happened yeah. while they were <laughs> shooting. So it was deliberate. Yeah. And they put this owl hoot in. Deliberately into that theme, hmm. so you know I don't I don't want to read too much into that. I really don't want to start you know saying well you know Alvin is kind of an elder Cooper and this is Warren Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> that that it goes that goes too far. But I do think Alan Yeah, he was acknowledging some of that theme that he's he's looked at before in other films.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I-, I just was gonna say. When you when you say that uh, the girl maybe Laura shouldn't listen to her elders or something, that also makes me like sort of distrust the scene more and like oh no, Alvin was giving her bad advice because I feel like if anybody had given that advice to Laura, it would have been like the, it would have been like the worst advice possible, you know? Like she really should have run away from home and just never looked back. <laughs> The log lady appears to Laura in Fire Walk With Me, and she tried yeah, her- to give her a warning with saying, you know, don't go down this path. And Laura doesn't, you know, heed that advice. Hmm. But so that's really the only, that that's really the, 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 the mild connection there. The girl looks like Laura Palmer to some extent with the hmm. hair, the way it is, the bangs that come down and the hair. So I don't, you know, I, I can't help but see some of that when I when I watch the film. But again, I I hesitate to go too deep into that. I just it, with, it's an interesting crossover uh,
3: there. In the secret diary of Laura Palmer, I think she was pregnant. I think Laura Palmer got pregnant and had a... She had an abortion, I think. The
1: first thing I noticed at the beginning of this movie, Balamente. I know his music sounds familiar. First song you hear when you're looking at the stars and you see all the open credits... I thought of Laura Palmer's theme, hmm. and that it, it really had a reminiscence of Twin Peaks, that kind of feel. And then the rest of the movie, he nailed it, man. That is in a great soundtrack. Hmm. I've been listening to it all day. Uh, phenomenal. Yeah, but the mood changes that opening credit scene really had that classic balamente feel and i just i'm like this yeah. sounds like laura palmer's theme but in space it's like <laughs> this it's like this kind of out there laura palmer theme feel to it and i actually played them back to back and they have almost the same you know they're slightly off but they're it just reminds oh, me, yeah. Mm. And then th- the rest oh. of the movie, it's totally, you know, he he has the the feel down. It's a different feel from that beginning track. Mm. I don't know another another Twin Peaks connection. I think
0: that lamentary score too. It's in the same vein as the rest of the film. is kind of having this like more naturalistic kind of like you you wouldn't think immediately you go from Twin Peaks with a sort of bombastic and over the top and and you know very kind of Purposefully exaggerated at times, sort yeah. of soap opera music, and then you have this, and it's very kind of rustic and restrained, but very stirring in that kind of 90s folksy way, you know, I think from, like, the Civil War on, you kind yeah. of had that strain of hmm. a lot of scores with kind of fiddle or whatever in it, so, it, yeah, it's, it's almost like the music kind of matches the performances and the direction everything else of of sort of presenting the Lynch world, but in you know, a slightly more naturalistic kind of way. I think there, I think there is perhaps uh, a, a connection to Twin Peaks in a very general sense, and that is that we are seeing small town characters mm-hmm. who come from a simple life. And yet, yeah. Lynch doesn't make fun of any of these characters, no, no. I and mean, even the Olsen twins. He, no. he does not... Make fun of them the, the woman who checks uh, Rose out at the grocery store you, it skirts up to the edge of parody or almost you know mocking this this sort of um, rural small town mannerisms, but it doesn't go that far it 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 respects those characters that they are they're good people who are doing their you know jobs and living their lives and, and everyone alvin encounters uh, throughout his journey you know is someone who is kind and wants to help or listen or uh... you know that they and i, I think i think that, that that connects with with some of what appealed to lynch about twin peaks with there with this small town and yes of course we get into the underworld, the underbelly, and the and the machinations, and the you know the secrets, and the and the things that are going on in Twin Peaks. But also in Twin Peaks, there are these these good characters. There is the mm. Big Ed, there is Norma, there's Major Briggs. They're mm. they're good people with good party lives, and I think that that. Comes through in this in this
3: film. Yeah, you make a great point, yeah. John. I can't. There's not one bad person in this film, is there? There's not like he doesn't. It's so funny. Like there was one scene where they were like talking about like, well, what about when you sleep? Aren't you f- afraid of getting hurt? And he says, oh, I go into the cornfield and I've been at war and I can handle you yeah, know, a cornfield. Yeah. But it's funny there. Was, yeah, there wasn't one bad encounter encounter he had. Yeah. No.
1: An eternal struggle. It's a film about an eternal struggle. Going to see his brother right. before he dies. His own demons,
3: his own issues. It's yeah. is, is inside himself. Yeah. Now, everything, when you think about it, right? Well, at least when he's talking about his own war stories, his is issues about himself, yeah. whatever issues he had with his brother is all about. that's. Yeah.
1: And maybe he's never spoke about these issues to his daughter on his journey, he's letting these little things out that mm. maybe he's never talked about before. Like, they show, during that thunderstorm, it's him and his daughter, and they're quietly watching a thunderstorm. Like, mm. they're watching TV or something. Like, they're not telling each other stories. It's just a simple, how was your day? We mm. need to get this done. Let's just watch the thunderstorm. They're just communicating just by being there. And then when he's meeting these people, he's unraveling himself, yeah. showing his weaknesses to these people he's never met before. So a part of me feels like maybe this is just he, like, John, you're saying with the beer, it's just like, I'm going to let it out and it will feel good yeah. because this is it. This is the end for me. My brother could die. I'm on the out. He was on the outs. His doctor said, if you don't change your ways, Mm. things are going to get
3: serious. And the Mm. next scene, he's smoking a cigar. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah, that's right. That's a great point. That's a great point about the doctor saying that, you know— uh, your health and stuff. And it's almost like, yeah. it, it doesn't, more I think about it, it's almost like it is his death sentence. Like he knows he's going to die and he's going to make his journey to his brother yeah. before that. The sort of
0: sad thing over Hane's movie is that the actor himself had cancer, I believe, mm-hmm. and he killed himself
2: Yeah, a yes. year so, later.
0: A year and later, and yeah. The pain was so great. So he was really not long for this world when he made this movie, sort of a very moving kind of undercurrent to it. He was very sick, I think, while they were filming. Yeah, he had
3: a long battle with uh, prostate uh, cancer. So, yeah, I think you're right, Joel. I think while they were making this, he he died October 6, 2000. So it really was almost literally a year later after the release that he died. So he committed suicide by shooting himself in his own ranch. So, I mean, the pain and... I mean, that's...
1: Yeah, he took his life because of the pain. Right. And the real yeah. Alvin Strait died a couple yeah. of years after his journey as well. Yeah. So it's interesting, these... Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. that's yeah.
0: right. Parallels. Yeah. I think the film, uh, you know, obviously it's a true story, but I think the way the film ends, Alvin and his brother are going to die together. Mm, Whether yeah. they're already dead, which is a possibility, but that gets into, you know, an interpretive way of, you know, what what's happening that part of the film, or whether or not simply Alvin has reached his destination. He's not going back. He's there. He's fine. You can see him release some of the stress he's been holding. He did it. He got to his destination. And his brother, in an incredible performance by Harry Dean Stanton, Mm. who looks at the lawnmower Mm. and just the look on his face is a look of recognition of what Alvin Did just to come to him. Mm -hmm. And I think that is enough that these brothers have reconciled and they look to the stars. It's a happy ending, but it's also, I think it implies that, you know, that they are that they are done with their lives. I think it's a, a wonderful ending. I'm giving it away. Unfortunately, anyone listening to this has not seen the film, definitely worth watching, um, but that's how it ends. And um, again, uh, Harry Dean Stanton's performance in just a few seconds is just the perfect ending to this film. Mm.
1: Yeah, I and wanted Scott more.
0: Brian, did you know it was going to be him?
1: No, I did not. Uh, when I saw him, I was excited, and I was hoping for like, um, them to go into the cabin and have a like a talk right afterwards I was like oh I'm thinking about it. I'm like well that that's what it was about it was about mm-hmm. the journey it really wasn't about anything beyond that I realized that afterwards. But for that moment, I wanted just a little bit more. Yeah. But,
3: uh, of their, but the exchange was perfect. Alvin and his brother used to look up in the stars and then uh, they had that closeness. Yeah. And that's how they had the closeness. So it's, I think it's so fitting in some ways that here they are together again and they kind of look up at the stars and yeah. it seems to be like, hey, we're having this moment well, that we had when we were younger. Yeah. I don't yep. know. I thought it was Yeah. It's nice. very touching. Well, I, I know I mentioned this when we talked about Alfred, man,
0: months ago. But if I'm not mistaken, doesn't that how that elephant man lays down and dies? Mm. He knows that he's going to die. Yeah. And then doesn't the scenes evolve into stars, right? Yes. Evolve into yeah. the stars. So it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, in a way, it recalls that scene of the very quiet and dignified death of the elephant man and mm. the quiet and dignified you know uh last moments or at least the reconciliation of these brothers they they come to an ending but it's a dignified ending and it's a it, you know it's 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 a good reconciliation between
3: them. I always felt like it was almost the same person, the two brothers. Like, yeah, like you have Alvin and his two canes, and he's trying to get to the house, and then <laughs> and then Harry St- Stanton character is a, walker. a Walker, and it's yeah. like they're both just limping uh, along. Yes, just barely, <laughs> uh, they're
1: they're staying alive just to see each other one last time, you know.
3: Yeah, and then do you, how did you feel, Brian? Like so he gets he gets to the cabin and he's calling out his brother and there's no answer. <laughs> it's like do you think like he went through this whole journey and his brother's not even gonna be there? Well
1: part of me was like, oh no, is he dead? Did yeah, he die? Did he yeah. ma- not make it? I mean if he drove, he would have been there in a couple hours, they said, but I think at one point he mentions like four or five weeks. I mean Oh
3: gosh, yeah, it was like it was at least five weeks and that yeah. was
1: he left that in September, was, and it was in October or, at one point in the film. He I don't like, know
3: if that was halfway or how long he still had a I don't know, probably a ninety-minute drive. At yeah,
1: least. yeah. So I mean, he's lucky he made it there before because he he had a stroke and you know you just you didn't know how long he would be and but yeah, I, a part of me was like, oh no, is he dead? But I kind of he kinda, couldn't end yeah that, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't end it that way. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> well, one of the things that I like about it is uh, and one of the reasons it feels like one of his like kind of later films instead one of the earlier ones, I think. The contrast of Blue Velvet is interesting. Blue Velvet's, like, to me, much more kind of iconic. Like, you look at, like, it's almost like Lynch presents exactly what he wants you to see and nothing else. You know, so you're looking at one little corner of the town here, one little sort of tableau there, the, the Lumberton sign, you know, and it's sort of like individual paintings. This movie with the sort of the flow of the camera work and the sweeping landscapes, it feels like much more exploratory to me Hmm. um, in a way that many of his later films do where it's more of like an open world that you can kind of travel around in versus sort of like just presenting you very small specific things which it's just legitimate it's just sort of two different styles of filmmaking and the thing that I really kind of relate to with this is I'm a big like walker usually more I guess in urban environments than like rural ones but usually I live in a place and I won't really kind of no, you know the neighborhood per se that we'll just kind of go where I need to go and this and that. And then after I've lived there for about a year or two, this happened with like three or four different places, I'll, you know, one day I'll just kind of start walking. I'll go for a walk and kind of go around the block. You can, like sort of discover this new neighborhood. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know this was really there. And then, you know, the walks will grow longer and longer, and eventually like there'll be days where I'll go out and I'll just walk for like a couple hours in a direction that I don't even know what there is. So, that's like the sense I get from this. Because his tractor is so slow, like he probably walked faster. The <laughs> tractor <laughs> so There's the sense that like you have the freedom of the road movie, be, but because the movie is slow, you're really like soaking it all in and kind of mm-hmm. taking it all in at this slow, leisurely pace where you're you're able to like notice little details and kind of pick up on them. And I just I really love that sense. It really conveys the experience. Of what it must be like to just be sitting on that on that little machine crawling along on the open road for weeks on end—a fun part of it, maybe not the, the tedious part. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and contrast the the same exact shots that he uses in uh, The Straight Story with Lost Highway. You've got this scene in Lost Highway where the dashed line on the road is Mm -hmm. just flashing past. The the car is just racing along a road. And then he does the same shot in the straight story, <laughs> only the, the, the dash on the road just slowly passes through the frame of the, of the, of the screen. Yeah. and uh, yeah, he's almost saying to you, you know, here's another road, but this time we are slowing way down, yes. and we're going to look around and see what, what's yeah. there. One way to put it is it's a landscape movie, you know? Yeah. I think some of the other some of the films are almost still life. Maybe race ahead and move over, they're still lifes. So this is a uh, landscape.
3: If yeah, yeah. I remember seeing this in the in the theater, and we got to the end, and there's Harry Dean Stan and uh, I was thinking, "Wow, he looks so old. He's he looks. So, I mean, I mean, it's his character and stuff like that. But now we're talking almost 20 years later, and he, you know, he's still. around, right? He, he's still old He's still around. He's still older, but he's going to be in Lucky, that uh, new TV series with David Lynch. I mean, I think it's coming out sometime this year. It'll be. But it's funny to think that, like. 20 years ago, I thought, boy, this guy's getting old here. And, like, here he is again, still acting, still doing great yeah. work.
0: It's awesome.
1: And he's
3: in he's in the new Twin Peaks uh, yeah. TV series, too. So Yeah,
0: can't wait. That's, that was very exciting to hear that Harry Dean Stanton is in Twin Peaks. I assume that's called a lot, but I didn't want to assume anything. Yeah. <laughs> <was just> a <laughs> new yeah. yeah. Uh, kind of a, Kind of amazing that the straight story is still right now. It's 18 years old. And it's still his third most recent film. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you went back to before that, his third, you know, if you were watching it in 1999, like, go back to, like, Wild at Heart, and that was only, like, nine years ago. So, literally twice the amount of time to make this, the same amount of films. Wow. So he kind yeah. of showed down himself, you know? I can't remember when he shot the bulk of Mulholland Drive. Was that. It was right they around the time he shot Log Pilot because he shot it as a pilot for television, and then it, 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 yeah. it you know, it was sitting there on the shelf for some time before he returned to it. Now the Drive* came out in 2001, and *Straight Story* came out in 1999. Holland Drive* was filmed very, very close to *The Straight Story*. I mean, the bulk yeah. of Maholland and Drive* and, uh, you know, those things happened within a year or 18 months of each other, uh, maybe, maybe closer than that. So, so just to your point is, those, those two projects were, were done back to back, and then Inland Empire came. Uh, wow. you know, you're, years later, and it hasn't been anything since until we get, well, now, you know, Twin Peaks is about to happen. So, fascinating that there's been so little, uh, output from Lynch in in the last 15 years. Well, when it came out, too, I almost saw it, um, because they had like a Telluride comes to New Hampshire type of festival with Eric Joe Tell Telluride. And I almost once saw it, and then I didn't, and then Mullin Drive came out a couple of years later, I saw the TV collection, I'm like, oh, that looks. Oh, well, I didn't know much. You know, I knew who David Lynch was. I knew what he be, but I hadn't. I think I'd only seen The Elephant Man. I thought, oh my god, that looks good! And then I didn't see that. And The England Empire came out when I lived in New York, and it was playing at theaters around me. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I, saw it. so I've still never seen a Lynch film, you know, because he made oh, so few. No. Cool. Damn it! Oh, you've got to go <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> and there's the first time. First time. I've actually seen all almost wow. all of them because um, New York. I went to New York when they had the retrospective screening. So oh, good. They showed all of them on 35 millimeter and everything. So that was great. But still, to see it for the first time on the big screen when it comes out that yeah. would be, you know, for the next one, maybe, if there is a the next one. Yeah, right, if there is a the next one.
1: <laughs> Richard Farnsworth, this movie, this is like an odd thing. To this date, at age 79... Um, I guess he's the oldest person ever to be nominated for Academy Award because of this movie for an, o- yeah. for an Oscar. And yeah. then the Spirit Award, he won the Spirit Award for Best Male. So this movie got a lot of accolades, um, was nominated for a lot, lot of good. different things, and won a lot. I mean, that's pretty awesome. He, I guess he came out of retirement. Farmsworth came out of retirement for this film.
3: Wow. Yeah, he,
1: I think he does an amazing he, performance.
0: He does, and he, he deserves the nomination for sure. Uh, to you know, be nominated as best actor, uh, he did not win.
1: I uh, no.
3: forget
0: who won that year.
3: Originally, I, I I had this show for May because I thought it, it premiered in May. The film had its first screening, as far as I know, in May in France at the Cannes Film Festival. But May twenty first, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, is when it it, ah. it it premiered at the Cannes <laughs> Film Festival. Wow. <laughs> May 21st, the same date as Twin Peaks yeah. premiere. It's crazy. Yes, that's great. I think we can wrap this up. Uh, sure, yeah. You can follow me uh,
0: uh, on Twitter at foreign Whip. And that's T-H-O-R-N-E-W-I-T. Uh, I have my blog, which is, uh, above the convenience store, which is above the store dot blogspot dot com. And of course my book, uh, The Essential Wraps and Plastic, which collects a lot of, uh, the writings and, and interview material. About Twin Peaks, uh, that book is on uh, Amazon. Working on the new magazine with Scott Ryan, The Blue Rose, and we are hard at work right now on issue two, which will be coming out in June. And you can find me at Lost in the Movies on Twitter, and my website is movies dot com. And I'm doing a Twin Peaks character series, and you're going to be seeing the final big entries where I cover, you know, the, the characters with the most screen time in Twin Peaks. So. Tune in and you can check out the whole shebang before you uh, watch the new, the new premiere. You can catch that on lostinthemovies.com.
3: Joel, I'm really enjoying the the series. I think you have a lot of great insight. And uh, the detail that you go into some of these posts, I'm like, where do you have the time to to, to research all this and put it together?
0: Joel, we heard you on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And you said that Cooper was going to be the number one, obviously going to be the number one screen time character. And then you asked for a guess at number two. I have my guess at number two. My guess is Donna Hayward. All right. We'll see if you are correct. Ah, <laughs> wow, Donna Hayward. I will say I did there that a couple much? interesting things a few of the characters. There are some surprises coming up for sure.
1: So thank you, John, and thank you, Joel, for coming on today's show. Yeah, great. They had such good insight. Having those two guys on for this show was was always special so we had, special we had a great time i
3: think it's so special to have them on and we're getting so close to the new series coming yeah. back and to get this moment with these guys it's awesome it you know it's gonna get
1: crazy for the next couple of weeks you can email us at twin peaks unwrapped at gmail.com and tell us what you think about season three if you're excited about season three like we are also you can follow along right now on youtube on our facebook page and on youtube every day We're reliving my journey through season one through season two, plus the books leading right up to season three of Twin Peaks.
3: The countdown is on. Yeah, the countdown is on.
1: So like us on Facebook. You'll see those YouTube posts every day. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, Twitter. Ben,
3: we got Twitter going highly we got a lot of stuff going on twitter very popular. i love twitter i mean i love the community and what they yeah. and i feel like there's even more conversations and discussions happening now that we're getting so close to yeah. the end i mean it's great every day i'm in, i'm just enjoying the conversations about twin peaks yeah
1: and the art and the videos and the pictures and all this cool stuff coming out from the community is amazing
3: and i guess
1: maybe we should say this now to get people used to the fact that once season 3 does start Mm. We should just make a point to say we will be putting out our show on Thursdays.
3: Yeah, right? we're changing it up. I mean, like <laughs> Brian, you and I were looking at this and say, okay, the show comes out on Sunday. We need time to kind of put our notes together. We need we have a busy schedule with our work and everything, and yeah. like we need to yeah. So the, the it made more sense for us to be able to find time to record. And then be maybe do a tiny bit of editing, tiny bit editing, I know, a ben. little bit of editing, and then get it out on Thursday. That yeah. makes sense. So that's our new schedule. Unless I can't get the editing done, and then it'll be Friday. But,
1: <laughs> but it will be out Thursday or Friday. But we're gonna we're, shoot for Thursday. We're shooting for
3: Thursday. So when yeah, when the right after May twenty first, we will start uh, airing our show on Thursdays. Yeah.
1: So just give everybody a heads up. That's what's gonna be happening, and we have to thank everybody who uh, came on our 100th show and sent us all those messages. is was very nice Oh, it was everybody. so special.
3: It was so good to hear from our friends like John Thorne and hear from Andy and hear from Maya and so many of our, our friends that we have had on the show. And then it's so cool just to have the, the, the community there.
1: Yeah. It's really about the community. It really is. It's just amazing. It is. Yeah. So with saying all that, we'll be back next week, and we'll leave you with this.
4: What made me decide to do, do the straight story? Um, I fell in love with the script. I had heard about it because Mary Sweeney, who is my girlfriend, um, I'd been talking about it for three years. And then she and her childhood friend, John Roach, wrote that script. And I read it and fell in love with it. And what I fell in love with, I think, was the emotion in in that script. And emotion is an abstraction. And I wanted to see if I could get that emotion to come out of the, out of the, f- the film.
1: Is that your goal when you start making film? I mean, is it to take abstractions, to visualize your ideas?
4: It's falling in love with ideas, and then the beautiful process of translating those ideas to film. And um, so it's, it's, it's sort of what it's all about. And, um, and it's also about going into another world and um, experiencing that. And uh, that's what it's like going into a theater, is it's best, at least for me, to not know anything about the film, and the lights go down, the curtains open, and you enter another world. It's so beautiful.